up these spiritual truths. And I love doing that every single Sunday that we get to gather um, to be here. Uh, and, I, and I hope that you appreciate that opportunity as well, that it's uplifting to you, encouraging to you, um, and that you are uh, participating in uplifting and encouraging the people around you as you sing. Um, so this morning, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue our series uh, to Judea um, as we're looking through uh, the second part of the book of Acts, which is uh, specifically uh, looking at the, the expansion of the church throughout the areas of Judea and Samaria um, as they are getting ready to launch towards the ends of the earth. And so, um, so we're in that second part of to Judea, uh, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in verse uh, 23, starting verse 23 this morning. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. It says this, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now that him is, is Saul, if you remember from last week. Uh, but the Jews plotted to kill Saul, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews. They were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiply. Let me pray for us and we'll get into the text this morning. Holy Father, I thank you for your word, that it challenges us, comforts us, reminds us of, of spiritual truths, things that, things that we don't naturally think about, things that, uh, that don't naturally come across our mind, and we, we get so caught up in the things of our world, we get so caught up in our, our lives and the, the, the circumstances that surround us and the, 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 the problems of daily life, we get so enamored with those things and get so caught up with those things that, that we don't take a moment to, to, to open up your word and recognize that you are speaking to a spiritual, eternal truths that are going to matter much longer uh, than our life here on this earth. So I thank you, Father, for, for giving us this opportunity to challenge us, to, to shake us of our life today. Father, I pray that we would have ears that are ready to hear what you're teaching us and a heart that is excited to apply it. In the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if you guys ever have this feeling, it happens to me every now and then, where things are going really well, right? Life is going great, and then you're just wondering when the law of averages is going to kick in and something's going to go wrong, right? Like there's a, there's a continuum, right? There's optimists, um, and there are uh, pessimists, and then in the middle there's realists. Like I'm, I'm kind of a realist, more on the optimist side of things, but but the realist part of me recognizes, like, law of averages, things are going perfect. Something's got to go wrong at some point, right? Uh, well, one uh, winter break 2020, uh, kind of before the world shut down with, for COVID, um, which I think is how we're going to start measuring time uh, from now on. Like, this is 2020, like, B.C., before COVID. 
And, um, and uh, so that one winter break in January uh, of 2020, uh, I, that winter break was going great. Right? I, I had scheduled a class uh, in, the, in the winter, and then I had scheduled a trip to Kenya to go on a mission trip, and then I scheduled a class right after I got back. And you know, no wasted time. Things were going great. And so then I go on uh, the, that first class. Class goes great. And then I go and I fly over to Kenya for this mission trip, and it is amazing. I, 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 an incredible time where, where God is moving in Kenya, where we're, we're seeing people come to know Jesus. And this guy that I led to Jesus then, then helps me reach his neighbors for Christ. I mean, just an incredible time. Churches are planted. Pastors are trained. I mean, just, just a great time. The, the, the team got uh, along really well. Like, there were no problems uh, with the team. And so, I mean, it just could not have gone better. Uh, and, and then I, we were getting ready to leave. And remember, I had a class uh, scheduled right after we got back. So I, I, I had a class, uh, an intense winter class scheduled three days after we returned. So we were supposed to land on a Sunday. Uh, and I was supposed to start class on a Wednesday, uh, which in hindsight was probably way too quick of a turnaround for an intense three-day class where I'm going to be expected to like, sit and take notes and listen all day for, for nine hours. Um, after recovering from jet lag. But, you know, I was like, yeah, I can do it. Like, I got this, no problem. Everything was going great uh, until we got to the airport. And we arrived at the airport in Nairobi, and uh, they told us our plane was delayed because there was weather, a freak storm in Dubai. Now, it's, just so you know, Dubai gets less than four inches of rain a year, and it is pouring in Dubai, and so we can't leave Nairobi to go to Dubai, and so they say, your plane's delayed, we kind of hang out in a terminal there, uh, and eventually they tell us your plane has to be delayed 24 hours, you can't leave today, uh, and so we're frustrated, but they offer to, to put us up in a really nice hotel and pay for our meals and shuttle us back and forth from the airport, and so all things considered, it's a pretty good trade-off, like, it's like, like, we were there for a mission trip, and now it's like one day vacation in Nairobi, right, so it's, it's, all things considered, not too bad. We get back to the airport uh, in Nairobi. We fly to Dubai. Well, the problem was, because our plane was delayed, we missed our flight from Dubai to Houston. Uh, we missed that flight. And so they booked us on a flight from Dubai to Frankfurt that was going to take off right after we got in Dubai. And then they booked us on a flight from Frankfurt to Houston that was going to take off right after we got to Frankfurt. So we were, didn't have any long layovers. It was going to be fine. It going to go smooth. So we land in Dubai. We run to our gate. They're already boarding the plane. Uh, so we get on that flight from Dubai to Frankfurt, no problems, hop over to Frankfurt. Uh, but the flight that they booked us on at Frankfurt was the other side of the airport uh, from where we landed in Frankfurt. And if you've ever been to Germany uh, at, at the Frankfurt airport, you know that from one side of the airport to the other, you have to take like two or three trams and go through security again. And so we had to run across the airport, go through security, take two or three trams. And by the time we got to our gate at the flight in uh, Frankfurt, it was 12 minutes before they were bored, or 12 minutes before they left, and they'd already given our seats away to the next standby passengers. And so we're standing there in Frankfurt, and that was the last flight out for the day. And so we're like, what else could go wrong? Um, but they they put us up in a not as nice hotel, and they they comped our meals, and it was fun. Uh, it was it was fine. But keep in mind now, we're scheduled to land Tuesday morning, and my class is Wednesday. Right? And I'm like, this I did not plan as well. Um, we get to the uh, on the plane in Frankfurt. And because we were flying standby, they put us on a standby list, uh, it was just whatever seat was available. And I happened to get, like, the first seat of economy, like the one with a little bit extra leg room. I'm like, it was great. This is a, gr a good moment. 
we're flying from Frankfurt uh, over to Houston. Things seem to be going really well. And then as we're over St. Louis, uh, so remember, I'm the front seat of economy. In front of me is business class. Um, the seat in front of me catches on fire. Like, who's ever had that happen before on a plane? But they had an electrical shortage in the seat in front of me, and so smoke starts coming out of the seat, and, and they lift up the seat, and there's, like, little sparks on the plane. And, and I'm like, surely we're going to have to divert. You know, like, we're gonna, I'm going to go to St. Louis. I'm going to miss my class. Like, this is the worst <laughs> possible. Like, this never happens, right? Uh, so they, they bring a fire extinguisher out. They put the chair out. Um, thankfully, nobody was <laughs> sitting in it, but um, they put the chair out, and I, apparently, you know, so you, you divert from, like, unruly passengers all the time, but, but, uh, but not for a fire on a plane. We just kept going. We just, like, we landed in Houston, no problems. Uh, we get to Houston and uh, go to get my uh, luggage from the baggage carousel, my family's waiting for me, uh, picking me up from the airport, and then the baggage carousel broke that our luggage was on, and we had to wait for over an hour to get our luggage from the baggage carousel. So literally everything that could possibly go wrong in that uh, travel time seemed to go wrong, right? Even things that can't possibly go wrong, like seats catching on fire happened, you know? And so everything was going great that winter break until everything seemed to be going wrong. Well, in Saul's life in this moment, everything seems to be going great. Right? Everything is going right. For the very first time, he's living for eternity today. And for the very first time, he has entered into a relationship with Jesus. He's, he's had his sins forgiven and washed clean. He has been set on mission by God to go reach lost people with the gospel. So he's, he's reaching people with the gospel. He's proclaiming the message of salvation. Things seem to be going really well in his life. Like, look with me. Uh, in Acts 9, if we go back to chapter uh, 9, verse 20. Just a few verses. We read these last week. It says, Saul immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name? And, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? And, but Saul increased all the more in strength and, by, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Things were going really well for Saul. Right? He is preaching. He is proclaiming the fact that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and no one else. Like, things could not be going any better for him. Like Imagine the, the boldness that it would take for Paul to walk into the synagogue in Damascus and proclaim the gospel. But he was doing it. He was doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. Just imagine a guy who went to Damascus to go arrest Christians. And now he's walking into the synagogue there trying to convince everybody to become a Christian. Like, imagine how awkward and difficult that would be. But he's doing it. And he is, he is doing it well. He is proclaiming the gospel to people there. You and I uh, struggle to share the gospel because it's awkward or, or inconvenient for us. But, like, look at Paul. Like, you want to know what living for eternity today looks like? like look at Paul. He, he's walking into a synagogue of people who know he murders Christians. And he's proclaiming to them the name of Jesus. Like, he, is, he is passionately doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. Things are going really well. Again, for the first time in his life, he's exactly where he's supposed to be. Look again in... Uh, if we skip down to when he makes his way to Jerusalem, look with me in verse 27. 
Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Notice the adverb that is used there about Paul. Not only is he preaching, he is preaching boldly. He is preaching with with strength and grit. He is preaching with passion about the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is is walking into uh, synagogues. He is walking into encounters where he is boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the, the risks to his life. He is boldly and passionately proclaiming Jesus. I'm not telling any of us to go run to our nearest synagogue and rush in there and share with them the name of Jesus, right? Please do not run to a mosque and proclaim Christ uh, in the mosque. Like, none of us need to go graffiti a Hindu temple with John 3.16, right? That's not the kind of boldness that's being proclaimed here. But imagine that we as a church interacted and engaged the lost with just a little bit, a fraction of the boldness that Paul is displaying here. Imagine if we just had a, a touch of the boldness that Paul is displaying here, that, that we would go and share the gospel with our neighbors. Like how many stories would we be able to tell about our coworkers coming to know Jesus? How many of our family members would be sitting here right with us, worshiping the Lord? How long would it be until we'd have to get a brand new building to be able to house all of the people whose lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel. If you and I interact with the lost and engage the lost with just a fraction of the boldness of Paul, who knows what the Lord can do with us? If we would go live for eternity today in the way that Paul did, who knows how many lives can be changed? How many lives can be saved? That's the boldness that Paul is preaching with and proclaiming here. He is, he is proclaiming with boldness in Jerusalem because he knows that the, the eternal souls and their eternal destination of the Jews there in Jerusalem and in Damascus matters way more than what they're going to think about him. Like where they're going to end up for all of eternity matters way more than any, any potential risks to his safety. So he boldly goes and proclaims the gospel. He boldly goes and teaches them that there is salvation in nobody else but in Jesus Christ. Now the thing is, that even though Paul was living for eternity today, and he was doing exactly what God had called him to do, and he was exactly where Jesus wanted him to be, that doesn't mean that he was exempt from difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean that everything was going to work out perfectly. That's not true for us. We can be exactly where God wants us to be and still encounter difficult times. That's exactly what happened to Paul. Look with me in verse 23. He's in Damascus. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing exactly what Jesus sent him to do. Verse 23, he says, it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were, watching the gates, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So what we see there is things go south in a hurry for Saul. 
Right? Here's a guy who's doing exactly what God wants him to do. Here's a guy who's proclaiming the gospel boldly. Here's a guy where everything seems to be going right because he's, he's right within the will of God, and yet here's, uh, here is a, here's a group of enemies that want to kill him, that want to, to wipe him out and put him to death, and so they're watching the gates, and they're ready to kill him. I, I, the first picture that pops into my head is like Wiley e. Coyote with a big hammer, like waiting right behind a wall for the road runner. Like It's obviously much, much more serious than that. Uh, but that's the first image that pops in my head. Uh, these guys are just waiting to catch him. They're waiting to end his life. Think of how scary that is for Paul. Think of the, the emotions that that brings up in his life. Like This is not an, an easy moment for him. This is, this is a low part in his life. Things seem to be going well, and then a whole group of people want to kill him. And so they have stationed themselves right outside the door so that if he ever leaves, they're going to end his life. Spoiler, he makes his way to Jerusalem. But look with me in verse 29. Paul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, meaning the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. Are you sensing a pattern here? So the, the understanding of what happened in Damascus adds some, some context and some strength to the idea that he was preaching boldly. Right? He was preaching even though uh, the people group that he's preaching to tried to kill him in the last city that he visited. He is still going out there and proclaiming the gospel boldly. Because again, their eternal destination matters way more than his uh, risk of making the rulers mad. But here he is in Jerusalem, once again, doing exactly what God commanded him to do, exactly what Jesus sent him to do, and a crowd is getting ready to kill him. Think of the toll that that's taking on him. Think of the, the emotional turmoil that he's going through. I can, picture, uh, I can picture Saul crying out like King David when David was running for his life, something like, God, look at what they're doing to me. I'm doing exactly what you want and, and see how people are oppressing me. God, rescue me. Like we, we often put religious leaders and, and biblical heroes up on this pedestal where we, we remove their emotions from them and act like, like they had such great faith in God that, that nothing fazed them. And, and while it's true that Paul continued to preach the gospel and continued to do so boldly because he was reliant on the Lord, that doesn't negate the fact that this is a tough moment for him. He's encountering a, a really difficult moment in his life, and he's going through a, a tough emotional time. You know the feelings that I'm talking about. You know what, what Saul is going through in this moment. You may not be running for your life, but you know the feeling of anxiety. That, that life just seems to be building up and and crisis seems to hit after crisis, and, and you can't seem to, to catch your breath long enough uh, to, to endure the next wave. You know the feeling of injustice. Somebody wrongs you and seems to just get away with it. Nobody seems to notice, and nobody seems to care. You know the feeling of, of depression. And loneliness, feeling like, like there's nobody there 
to help you, nobody there to come alongside you. Like you're, you're just all alone. Like you know these feelings, you know these emotions that accompany a difficult time, this low moments in your life, and that's exactly what Saul is going through. So there's a group of men who are, who are out to kill him, a group of men who are ready to end his life. He has encountered some really difficult moments, and remember, he is doing exactly what God has called him to do. When we encounter difficult times, a lot of times our first, uh, our first instinct is to cry out and say, God, what did I do to deserve this? Like, well, What sin did I commit? We're looking for a reason that we're encountering these difficult moments and these troubling times. We're, we're looking for, for a cause. And sometimes our sinful nature, sometimes our sinful acts do result in tough circumstances. Right? Like if you're sitting in jail and you're wondering, what did I do to deserve this? But you stole a car. Like that's a pretty simple cause and effect. Right? Easy answer. But sometimes there is no easy cause. Sometimes you're doing exactly what God calls you to do. Sometimes you're right on his path and it seems like things are just going wrong. There's injustice. There's depression. There's anxiety. There's there are difficult, troubling times, crisis after crisis seems to be hitting you, and you can't pinpoint any cause or reason for it. You and I go through these difficult times all the time. You and I have these low moments, regardless of whether or not we're living for eternity today, regardless of whether or not we're following Jesus. Notice what happens with Saul in verse 25, and those low moments, in that, in that difficult time in his life, he was utterly dependent upon God and God's people. Look at me in verse 25. His disciples, uh, this is in Damascus, when they, they learned that uh, there's a group waiting to kill him, his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So the, the group, the disciples, they, they find out about this plot to end Saul's life. Right? They know that there are men stationed outside of the gate to kill him. So that's good that they, they've come to realize that, they've come to understand that. But here's the problem. This church has three exits. If I put a guard outside each exit, and they're just waiting there to kill you if you left, like it really doesn't matter that you know that they're out there. Like you're trapped. And there is no way for you to get out. And that's exactly what Saul is doing here. They have posted guards. They have posted people waiting to kill him at the only exit of the city. And so he needs to flee. He needs to run for his life. But he literally can't leave. He cannot escape the city without dying. So the Christians there, they come up with this brilliant plan. They get a basket. Picture like a, a laundry basket. Like just a big basket and they tell Paul to get in so they get they put him in this basket they tie a rope to it and they go to a window in the wall and they lower the basket down to the ground so he can get out and he can escape without going through the front gate that is a, a brilliant plan but also a really low moment in Saul's life like imagine you're you're scared you're 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 running for your life and then you have to get in into a basket like <laughs> 
You have to crawl inside of this basket and be let down through a window by a group of people that you tried to kill like a few weeks ago. Like that is a really low moment. He is utterly and completely dependent on those people. Saul actually thinks back on this event and reflects on this event in one of his later writings. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's listing this impressive spiritual resume. Right? All the things that he had gone through, all the, all the great things that God had done through him, all the things that he had endured while out doing ministry. Like he goes through this, this resume that would put all of us to shame. Right? If, if Saul's res- resume were brought out versus our resume, we'd be like, wow, this guy clearly is doing things that are incredible for the Lord. This is a guy uh, who clearly has things together. This is a guy who, who clearly is incredibly impressive. So he lists this long, impressive resume, and then he says, I don't want to boast in any of those things. Let me tell you about this time that I was put into a basket and lowered out of a wall. So I would much rather boast about that because it shows my weakness. When Saul thinks back on this moment when he's reflecting about it, he is pinpointing the fact that he was utterly weak and low at this point in time. He was completely unable to save himself, completely unable to, uh, to, to win the day, to, to, to whip out his resume and, and look impressive in this instance. He was completely and utterly dependent upon God and his people. 100%. He was weak and lowly in this moment. He gets to Jerusalem. Look with me in verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So so he gets to Jerusalem. He flees. He runs to Jerusalem. He's able to, to escape for his life from Damascus. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he needs acceptance from the Christians there. Like He needs to be brought in to the fold. He's running for his life. He needs acceptance from the Christians there because he's not a Jew anymore. He's now a follower of Jesus, so he needs to be brought in to the fold there in Jerusalem. But the problem is, he went up to Damascus to kill Christians. And so these these Christians there in Jerusalem are rightly uh, a little nervous, understandably a little nervous about bringing Saul in. Right? We would be a little... Like, he, he might be the worst undercover agent ever, right? That's their, they might be thinking. Right? He's, just gonna, he's saying he's a Christian. He's saying he's encountered uh, Jesus. But really, he's just trying to figure out how many of us there are, how many people uh, there are among us, and then he can arrest us, throw us all in prison. Because he's done it to my friend. <laughs> he's done it to my neighbor. He's done it to our, our pastor. Like he's, he's, he has imprisoned and, and murdered so many people that we know and love and it's like, that's the Saul that did that. So he arrives in Jerusalem, and he needs their acceptance. Again, there's nothing Saul can do at this moment that's going to showcase his brilliance. And there's nothing Saul can do at this moment that is worthy of praise and honor. He is 100% dependent on the Christians who are there. Notice what happens in verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly. 
in the name of the Lord. The only way that Saul was able to gain acceptance among the Christians, the only way he was able to gain a hearing among the believers there was when one of their own, when Barnabas came and brought him under his wing and said, this guy's for real. This guy is actually a follower of Jesus. Let me tell you about his conversion. Let me tell you about the boldness with which he preached in Damascus. Saul was 100% utterly dependent on God and God's people in that moment. As he's in Jerusalem, he finds out that a group is there to kill him. Notice in verse 30 what happens. When the brothers learned about the plot to kill him, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So notice again what happened. Saul was utterly dependent upon God and God's people. It was God's people that heard about the plot, and it was God's people that, was it, that were able to get him out, that would sent him to Caesarea and then sent him to Tarsus. Like Saul could not escape. Saul could not rescue himself from the situation. He was utterly dependent upon God and God's people. He needed God to intervene and interact with him. And he needed God's people. He needed the Christians around him to carry him through, to, to come alongside him and help him get through this low moment in his life. He was 100% dependent. That's what I want us to get out of the text this morning. As we live for eternity today, we are dependent upon God and his people. As we are doing the things that God has called us to do, as we go about living our lives, doing, doing exactly what Jesus has, has sent us out for, we need one another. We need the Lord. Uh, we are utterly dependent on God for everything, right? We are dependent on God for his breath, like for, for our breath. To even be alive, we're dependent upon God. We're dependent upon God for everything that we have. But as Christians who are called to be part of a fellowship and community, as people who are built to be part of a family, we are also dependent on God's people to help carry us through and strengthen us at all times. That's why the New Testament is adamant that the Christian life is not a solo endeavor. Like, none of us are lone ranger Christians. We need each other. Maybe your life is going really well. Good for you. Like, maybe everything is going fine. You're checking off all your boxes. Things are going swimmingly. In those moments... It is easy to forget that you're dependent on other people. It is easy to feel independent and like you have everything all together. Right? No CEO writes a book about how to run a company when his stock is in the toilet. Right? They all, but they all seem to want to write a book about how to run a company when things are going really well for them. Right? We all seem to have advice on how to live. We all seem to have advice on, on do exactly like me when things are going really well. And you can just ride that wave for as long as you can. We don't seem to need other people or want other people. We don't seem to be dependent at all when things are going perfectly. We can just ride that wave. But if we're honest, if we assess our lives and we assess our world, we'll recognize that those waves do not last forever. And eventually, you will find yourself staring into a hurricane. But those easy times, those times where everything is going well, 
they do not last forever. You see, you and I live in a broken world. And it's a world filled with broken people and, and broken governments and, and broken societal structures and, and broken cultures and, 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 and everything around us is broken and sinful and marred by rebellion against God. And so in our interactions with the world, we're going to encounter brokenness. We're going to encounter difficult times and it may be no fault of our own, but we're going to encounter things that are not right. We're going to encounter injustice and crises and difficult moments, low times in our life, we're going to encounter them. And in those moments, we desperately need and are 100% dependent upon God and God's people. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel like you are in that low moment, that, that things are difficult, that you are experiencing crisis after crisis, that you're not worried about where you're going to be five years from now because you're just trying to get through this week. Where you, you feel that stress and that anxiety. You, you feel that the worry about the future because you just don't know how you're going to get by and get through this. You feel like you're in that low moment today. If that's you, let me comfort you with the fact that you have a Heavenly Father who is eminently dependable. There is a God who you can cry out to, a God that you can reach out to who will always come through for you. And he will always provide justice. He sees you. He's taking note of what's happening to you. He has not abandoned you. And he will provide justice for you. In fact, let me remind you that he has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and to rise again from the grave so that you could have a restored relationship with him. That he loves you enough to send his own son to die for you. And that that same Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he will set the whole world right. He will fix what is broken. He will, he will open up the books and the accounts of our lives, and he will bring justice with him. That we serve a God who is utterly dependable. And so let me encourage you to rely on him, to lean on him, and to trust in Jesus for salvation. To recognize that he's coming back and making all things right. But in the meantime, let me also encourage you and remind you from the text this morning that you're dependent upon us. That we are here for you. That we want to encourage you and love you, and carry you through this time. The Bible says, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. We want to be there for you in these difficult moments. Like, don't, don't feel like you're a burden. Don't feel like you're, you're placing anything on us that we aren't meant to carry. We are designed to be dependable. Like, we are designed to be people you can depend on. Let me encourage you. Remind you that it's okay to be dependent upon God and his people. It may be no fault of your own. But when we're in those low moments, we're in those times, we desperately need to rely on God and rely on his people. Faith family, let me encourage you to be vulnerable with one another. 
let us come alongside you. Let us come along and help you. And that only happens when we're honest and say, I'm in a low moment. Like, I need you and you need me. And I know that there will be times in my life where I need you to help me get through. I need you to carry me. And in those times, I need to be vulnerable with you. And the same needs to be true for you. In those times that you're in a low moment, let us help you. Be vulnerable with one another and recognize your dependence upon God and his people. But also let me encourage you, church, and, 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 and push you to not just recognize your dependence, but also be dependable. Like Be there for people who are hurting. Be there for people who are struggling. Go out of your way to help meet needs. Use your time, use your resources, whether that's your time or your money or your energy, to go help and meet the needs of the people who are struggling and going through a low moment. Be dependable people. We as a church, every single one of us, need to recognize that we are 100% dependent on God and his people. We also need to be a people that are dependable for those who are hurting. Some of you this morning, as I've already alluded to it a few times, what I can do for you, the best thing I can do for you, is not to pay for a meal or to help you with rent or to provide counseling for you, although I'm more than happy to do any of those things. The best thing I can do for you this morning is to point you to salvation in Jesus. Some of you know that you are, you are separated from God, that your sin has, has separated you from him, and that you are not a follower of Christ. You have never entered into a relationship with him. And so uh, the best thing I can do for you is point you to the fact that there is salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And by you placing your faith in him, it may not fix whatever problem you're in today. It may not make things any better, but I promise you that what you're experiencing today is going to feel like a small, insignificant speck in light of all of eternity. Like as you're standing and living in the eternal kingdom of God and experiencing the joy and the pleasure of life with him. So the best thing that I can do for you this morning is not to help you out in any of those ways, although I'm more than happy to do that. The best thing that I can do for you this morning is to remind you that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. To urge you to place your faith in him. In just a moment, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. What I would love to do is to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. I know it might be awkward <laughs> to come up here and to talk with me while everyone else is singing. But again, I would encourage you with the fact that that momentary awkwardness is going to pale in comparison to an eternity with Jesus. What I'm asking for this morning is just a small sliver of the boldness that Saul uh, displayed in this text. Be able and willing to step out of your comfort zone and come talk to me about an eternal life with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for us. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If that's you, come talk with me about what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life that we have in Jesus. I thank you for the hope that we have in him. 
I thank you for, for the eternal perspective that your word provides, God, that, that, that we aren't people who are bound by today, but that we are people who will experience an eternal life. And you can lift our eyes up and lift our horizons up to recognize that everything we happen, uh, that happens, uh, happens to us today, everything that we experience today, it might be hard. It might be difficult. It might be tragic, but, but at the end of the day, it pales in comparison to eternal life with you. So I thank you for the hope of the second coming, that Christ is coming back to make all things right. And thank you for the hope of eternal life. God, let us be a church that is vulnerable with each other, that recognizes that we're not independent lone rangers out doing our thing, but that we are dependent on one another, and ultimately we're dependent on you. God, let us be a church that is dependable, that will help and encourage and strengthen those who are at a low moment in their life. Pray for those who, who need to enter into a relationship with you this morning. God, may they have boldness to come and experience the joy of eternal life. We love you. Praise you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.